Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. Today we're meeting Simon Silver, the Director of Derwent London. Derwent has regenerated existing office stock in London for 30 years, and they're now set to create a more public space in Tottenham Court Road, with the first theatre in the West End for 40 years. Simon, I wanted to ask you right off the bat what you think makes a good place. I mean, you've worked in this part of London for a long time, and we've talked about the street, the grain of it. I mean, and you're, you've been contributing to that one building at a time, but I think you have a sense of what makes a good piece of city. It's got to, it's got to start with good design and architecture. It's um, commissioning talented firms, which we've tried to do for for most of certainly my career, which now spans 30 years, which ages me a bit. But uh, no, good architecture and design is absolutely, you know, first priority. You like materials too, though. Do the materials... Well, materiality is part of good architecture. Um, You know, most good architects have sensitivity towards the materials. And uh, we work only in London. And London, what always appeals to me about London is it's, it's, it was always formed of brick and stone, beautiful stones, and we, we try to adhere to that. We, you know, there's a lot, lot of panelled buildings, there's a lot of cladding, a um, lot of glass buildings, but I think using natural materials is, is often the way to go. When you um, look back to I mean, the T-Building, which is one of the first major projects that kind of hit um, and captured the public consciousness with this idea of reusing you know, urban large-scale urban buildings to create new and exciting offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it became a destination. Yeah. Um, you know, wh- what has that journey been like since then? And, you know, London's journey in terms of, uh, you know, the demand for offices and also this kind of location journey that... Yeah, it, it, it all started really, the, our journey started much earlier um, when we met the first architects we ever worked with. It was uh, 1987 and the use class order had just changed to allow B1 offices. So light industrial could be used for B1. And we bought a small portfolio. We were a very small company capitalized at seven million pounds. We were listed on the London Stock Exchange and we bought this Colebrook and Wilmar Estates, uh, which was also seven million pounds. So we were doubling the size of the company at the time. But what was interesting is it featured amongst it a small estate of industrial buildings in, um, in Islington on a place called Colebrook Row, um, just behind Islington Green. And uh, we didn't know what to do with the buildings. We'd never refurbished a building ourselves. It was the really beginning of our journey. And I was introduced to two young architects who had just left, um, they just left uh, Richard Rogers and um, they were called uh, John McCaslam and Jamie Troughton. And they they took this little 4,000 foot building and they converted it and it was like, wow. Look what they've done. It was, it was actually, a, I guess, a eureka moment um, where they converted it. And, and in order to make it more appealing, they cut away some space and created a double height space and then a mezzanine. And it was a real lesson, the very beginning for us in what, what we always refer to as volume and light. Um, creating volume and light is essential. The well-being, you know, you walk in and straight away it's attractive. And, and also they did it in, in a contemporary manner 
that if you went down and saw that building even today, all these years later, you'd still say it's a good building. So it's, it's a fun studio. And it really set us on the path of, of, of looking to work with talented guys like that and to create uh, you know, these, these wonderful spaces that you can create. And often by sacrificing square footage to create better quality square footage was a lesson we learned luckily very early on. And when you um, look at some of the projects you've gone from often taking, or you still often take you know, existing buildings and kind of strip them back and re remake them, but you've also you know, now are building them from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's because in the early days we were a small company, so it was very much about refurbishing and regenerating buildings. We probably couldn't afford to demolish them and start again. And you asked me the question actually earlier about tea and I didn't directly answer it, but doing those little buildings in Colebrook Row and St. Peter Street, which were of an industrial nature, it, it set us looking for other industrial type buildings that could be converted into office space because what they offered was these greater volumes than the average office floor. Um, and and that, that was really important to us. So it was, um, it was, a, it was a, a very good early experience, I think, that set, created our mindset from then on. And uh, I suppose in some ways we've adhered to it, you know, for years and years. And you look for architectural talent, but you're a pretty savvy and strong client. How does that relationship work? I, th I think because it's the experience of working with the, what I call the good guys. Um, you know, we're so lucky in, in London or in England that there are so many firms of architects. I always wonder why other companies would go abroad to hire an architect. They're all here, they're on your doorstep. But it's finding the good guys. And we, we were lucky and fortunate, and we had a, a, a strong mindset of our own that when we met, when we met uh, firms of architects, they were either on a wavelength with us and doing the sort of designs that, were, that were appealed to us or, the, or they sadly weren't. And, you know, we, we met some of what, what today would be quite big names when there were six or seven people, Michael Squire, Allies and Morrison, and, you know, AHMM. They were four of them. They pretended to be eight, but they were only four. Um, and, you know, the, these are big firms today. So we, we got in very early and we, we sought talent. Um, I must say, much with the help, uh, I had a, a colleague then, David Rosen, who w wasn't at Derwent, but he, he was an agent uh, that ran a firm called Pilcher Hirschman. And he had a brilliant eye, and he actually introduced me to John and Jamie, the first architects that we ever used. And, um, yeah, we then set about just always seeking out good young architectural talent. And I think that was one of the formulas that, that helped us sort of, um, you know, be more successful than we would otherwise have been. So um, I wanted to talk to you about the scheme because obviously we're right next door to a huge building site that belongs to you. So tell us yeah. a little bit about what we are and what we're seeing out the window. Well, uh, as you know, we're in Charlotte Street in, in Fitzrovia, which has become increasingly popular over the last seven or eight years. And really it was a, it was a milestone deal for Derwin that we, we merged back in 2007 um, with a company called London Merchant Securities, who owned uh, what I'd say, well, a, a chunk of Fitzrovia, um, over half a dozen office buildings at, at least in this area. Um, but they, uh, most of them dated back to the 60s. So it was a phenomenal opportunity for us to look at them and remake some of these buildings. 
And the site that you're looking at now is a big island site that, that straddles um, Whitfield Street and Charlotte Street and was a fantastic opportunity, formerly occupied by Saatchi and Saatchi, the advertising company is their headquarters. And um, it, the leases, when we did our merger in 2007, were sort of coming to an end within two or three years. So we set about studying what might be. And um, we, we commissioned Make Architects, and we worked with them for two or three years and um, eventually won a planning commission from the London Borough of Camden to, to create um, a complex of principally offices, but also of, of residential apartments and um, ground floor retail shops and restaurants, and we hope an art gallery by the time it's let as well. When we talk about what it was, it was a fairly, I mean, alienating block. I mean, really, when you were walking by that original building, it was very, um, uh, there wasn't really anything animating it on the street level. It was quite a huge hulk of a beast one. And what you've created here with, with Make, what Make have created with you, is, uh, is very different um, street. So can you talk about, about what you wanted to, um, yeah, to do there? We, um, you know, we often refer to our portfolio as being in a series of villages. We, we look at London, it's, it's the village atmosphere and the character of these villages, Fitzrovia, Soho, um, Bloomsbury, wherever you might be in London, that, that um, you want to retain. Um, what you don't want to do is spoil it and come along and, and build a block that doesn't speak to that area. So, so when we commissioned make um, what, what one of our briefs, important brief, was that we, we, we wanted to almost feel, rather than one big monolithic block, because that's what it is. It's, uh, there was 200,000 feet uh, on the site with Saatchi and Saatchi, and our planning permission actually um, entails something like 360,000 feet. So it's a very big building. Um, and we wanted to break it down into a series of elevations and make it more akin to the village type area that it sits in. Um, and that, that's hard. That, that was hard for them to come up with the right formula. But, but I'm very, very excited. I mean, obviously it's not finished now, but you can see looking at the model that's in our, in our marketing suite, um, what it's gonna look like. And um, I'm very confident that the people who live in the area, work in the area, aren't gonna think, oh no, another big office building. I think they're gonna, you know, we've used some wonderful materials and um, I, think, I think it's gonna be a terrific, terrific site, terrific development. There's a pocket park on one side. I mean, what it, there's a kind of a retained yeah. facade, it kind of dips in and out yeah. and there's a, there's a tiny little park there. Can you tell me about that? What's yeah, I mean, Credit to the London Borough of Camden. When, when we came along, they said that with any new development, they want to give something back. And, and they would like a, maybe a park within the middle of our development. And to put a small area in the middle of your development is actually, it, it takes away so much value that it makes it implausible. So we came up with something where, where we would actually have a pocket park that would be on the curtilage of the site that could be accessed by the public um, and we were very inspired by um, a, build, um, a park that we'd seen actually on our travels in New York um, called Paley Park, um, which, which is a, a, amongst all the amazing skyscrapers up in, I think it's about 55th Street in New York. Um, you can go somewhere and get away from all the noise and the, you know, the, 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 the rushing here and there and everywhere. And uh, 
it's a great little place, and we thought, well, if we could create in some way something similar just off Charlotte Street, wouldn't that be terrific? And um, so we, we went back to Camden and, and offered them what is a cut in the building. Um, I mean, I would imagine in, in value terms, you're talking millions of pounds, actually, that were, were given back in order to create this part. But it's well worth it, and it's going to be a lovely little sort of restful place to go to. And it's not just to be enjoyed by the tenants of the building, but anybody in the neighborhood who wants to um, sort of saunter in. So we'll, it, it's, it's been landscaped by um, a firm that we've used called Del Buono Gazowitz, who've done a bit of our landscaping in our buildings, and they've collaborated with Make. And um, I think it's going to be a, a really nice feature. In this um, block, you also have a bit of housing is that right? And so it's a mix of housing, retail, but then actually the offices are quite big. Um, you've got how many tenants in this in this building? Yeah, I mean, the, the, as I said earlier, the, the whole development is about 360,000 feet, which is the biggest development uh, I've ever undertaken. And it was important to have a mix of uses. And obviously, you know, Camden themselves wanted some, some residential and we were happy to supply it. So we, we gave them, um, I think we've got about 21 flats on the island site itself, on the corner of Whitfield Street, um, which will be accessed from Whitfield Street, and they will be for letting, um, because we wanted to retain ownership of them. Um, and then adjacent, we, we, we owned a building adjacent that used to belong to, um, they used to be occupied by Make Architects before they moved out. And it's a, a building called Astor House, where we're, we're creating another 18 or 19 flats, which will be for sale. So out of the 360 odd thousand feet, there, there's about 30 or 40,000 feet of residential. And then there's retail and, and galleries as well. So it, it, should, it should have a nice mixed use about it. The building's been pre-let to two major tenants. Um, our engineers, um, Arabs, have taken the, the, um, the lower floors and then the rest of the building's been taken by company called Boston Consulting, who are in Manchester Square at the moment and will be moving when our building completes in uh, the end of 2021, early 22. What are tenants looking for now? Is, has that changed over the years? Um, and, and, you know, is it still um, relatively basic or is it becoming more, more complicated? No, no, tenants are far more fussy than they used to be. I mean, you know, it's like w with time, people become more educated, you, you have to, you know, when you pick up a newspaper or, or a weekend magazine, you're always going to read about interior design, whether it's offices, residential. Uh, so people are much more familiar with what's going on and they want something good for themselves. And so the companies we meet are quite rightly very, very fussy. Um, they want to create their brand identity. And um, the one thing that we give them that I think more than any other developer, I must say, is, is that volume. Um, um, you know, it's very rare for our floor to ceilings in an office. The standard, I think, is around 2728 meters, and it's very rare that we're, we're below, much below three meters. Um, this building is, is, is 29, with the top floors being something like 3233, three, three, the top two floors. In, in other buildings, we always try and create three meters plus. And um, you know, even subconsciously, when people walk into that sort of space, they feel good. It's, it's a feel-good factor. 
and that well-being i mean and that well that well-being is like a word that's coming up a lot now you know your your yeah. employee well-being you know light space greenery yeah. um do you think that um there is there a connection between that volume and actually health or is it just you think it's almost like just a, a nice space to be in? no you've just said it i think it's a well-being it's, a, it's often a subconscious feeling the other the other thing that derwent have done for many many years is when we've bought buildings we, we've often bought buildings that that that, that are self-contained or, or, or on a corner of a site so that you get double frontage so that the architect has an opportunity to use the light and play with the light. We, we very, very rarely, I, I could count on one hand, maybe we've got two or three buildings in our whole portfolio, which is quite extensive now today. We've got over five and a half million square feet in the Derwent portfolio. And I can think of only a couple of two or three terrace buildings. They're, they're, they're all co corner buildings or, or island sites. And, and that gives you much more potential, and certainly for the architect, much more potential to play with. You've filled in a lot of atriums in the past because I know you've kind of added floor space above or, or within. That depth of floor plate, is that a challenge when you, when you make it deeper? It's a great question to ask me, especially in this development, because what we have done, and again, it's, it's sometimes giving away space to make better quality space. So what's very unusual about the, the 80 Charlotte Street development is we've actually got three atriums that run around our floor plate. So there's not one central one. Everybody enjoys a piece of atrium depending where they are in their floor plate. So they've got obviously the external windows and then they've got within. So it's gonna be a very special place. And it's been, you know, very carefully designed. Um, I don't know whether that's a first, but, but certainly it's something that we wanted to do. I wanted to um, talk about Soho Place. Yes. Which is one that's, coming up it's not coming out of the ground yet is it um it will be at the beginning of next year so tell me about um tell me about soho place oh soho place is uh, an, an amazing opportunity for us and with all the developments we've done over many many years i think perhaps this is the one that offers a bit of everything um it, it started off as life it's a good story actually it started life uh, as a, a building that we bought in joint venture when we were a very small company um, and it was a building on Charing Cross Road. Um, and we did a refurbishment, again, with Troughton McCaslam all those years ago. Well, actually, it was John McCaslam. They separated. Jamie had gone to Scotland, and uh, John did it for us. And um, believe it or not, the first tenant that came along for a very small suite of 4,000 feet had a very strange name called Google. And I, re I remember our CEO saying... Funny name, who, who are they? And um, we let the, the 4,000 feet to Google, but they didn't stay very long. As you can imagine, they grew very fast and we couldn't offer them a lot more space in that building. So they, they, they obviously um, ventured away and, and took, took more space all over London, as it turned out. The, the Charing Cross Road building, um, we, we then, we were sitting next to and many people in London will obviously know the building well. We were sitting next to the Astoria, um, and the Astoria building became available um, to purchase. Um, and it didn't adjoin us, it was adjacent. So there was a little, small little road that ran in between that took you into um, Soho Square. But there was something instinctive about it. We just thought we should buy it. 
maybe we can do more with the Astoria. Um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a real instinct. It was the sort of thing that maybe young, young property people wouldn't do today because everything's on a spreadsheet and everything's on an appraisal. Anyway, cut a long story short, we bought the Astoria and as luck would have it, it was compulsory purchased by Crossrail. And because we occupied so much, such a large extent of their site, it led to them opening the door to sit down with what's called a Crossrail agreement where they deal with the major landowner. We, we had over 80% of the site and we made a joint application to Westminster on that site, um, which has today become our development at Soho Place, which um, offers amazing uh, mix of uses. So because there was a cultural venue, um, the, the Astoria, Westminster were really keen to replace that with a theater. And we thought that's a terrific opportunity. How often in our lives are we ever gonna build a theater? And um, we, we teamed up, they introduced us actually to a remarkable lady called Nika Burns, who, who runs um, a theater group called NIMAX. And she owns the Apollo Theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue, amongst others. And we've worked with um, Nika now for many years in, in creating this theatre, which is going to face a, a large shop and office building, piece of public realm that leads into Soho Square. Um, I'm told it's be London's first new West End new build theatre in over 40 years. So what a privilege. You know, how lucky are we? So you have a bit of public realm here, and you also have a bit of public realm that you added on to in Old Street at um, White, White Collar Factory. Yeah. And so, you know, this kind of your, is, is it, do you see it as your approach to the inside of your office kind of going out to the street? Is there, is there a big difference between how you um, think of these kind of threshold spaces? I, I think it just gives you the opportunity to place make, which I think is what you referred to in an, an earlier question about placemaking. Um, you know, when you buy a small building and you refurbish it, you're, you, you're contributing to the street, but you're not necessarily place-making in that sense. These larger sites where, where you get some public realm and you're giving something back um, is, is a, you know, is, as I said earlier, probably a, a privilege to be involved in. So we're lucky at White Collar, it was a group of old 60s buildings, and now in the middle of our site, we have a piece of public realm. The same applies at Soho Place between the shop and office building and what will be the new theatre. There's a lovely little stretch. It's not large, but it's a lovely little stretch um, of public realm that takes you into Soho Square. So um, a terrific opportunity to create a, a new piece of London, a new piece of the West End. Um, people are very romantic about the old Charing Cross Road, and I understand why. But it was also very down at heel. It was, it, it, a lot of the buildings were pretty miserable. Uh, and I think what's happened to Centrepoint, which has been fantastically transformed by Alma Cantor, together with what we're doing opposite, I think becomes a, a new quarter of the West End. And I think it's gonna be an exciting place with a beautiful theater. Some, so there's gonna be a lot of pedestrian flow there, which is, is terrific. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're very, very excited. We start it next year. It's going to take two and a half years, maybe nearly three years to build. Um, so I'm looking to opening night in the theatre. Do you, um, I mean, obviously, um, Cantor's now not selling the Centrepoint flats. They're taking them off the market. You don't have any housing on this part of the site. 
No, it wasn't. It wasn't really part of the brief. It was always. It was always for employment. It was always about retail and offices. But I, I guess you could say instead of residential, it wouldn't be a very good spot for residential. I don't think because it, it would be. You know, Centre Point is something else. It's a giant building. It's a. It's a very tall building, um, and you're sort of away and above it, and you know the hustle and bustle. Um, but we're building a theatre, so instead of giving residential, we're giving culture. You know, it's not bad. What do you think the role is of culture in the city in terms of placemaking? Well, you know, London, London's famous for its culture. I mean, it's what makes the city, it's what makes the city, it gives it its buzz, really, in many ways. I mean, you know, who doesn't love coming to London and, and exploring the theatres and, you know, the, all, all the amazing range of, of uh, art galleries, museums, um, and everything that London has to offer. So to, to be a part of that and to, to build this theatre is, 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 is a great privilege, as I keep on saying. And uh, it's not a, a large theatre, but we're making sure it's terraced. So the public, after they've had their performance, they can go upstairs, have a drink, um, stand on these terraces overlooking, you know, part of the West End and, and enjoy it. So I think it's going to be pretty unique from that point of view. I want to ask you about building in Paddington. Um, because it's pretty unique looking. Can you tell me about Butcher Priest, what they've done for you? Yeah, we, we, we actually bought, again, many, many years ago, it was probably the end of the 90s, we, we bought um, what, incredibly enough, was a Richard Seafoot building, but it was built as a warehouse. Um, and, it, and so it had very generous proportions, and it sat on the canal um, at Paddington, and... When we bought it, I, I, although we refurbished it and let it, it was multi-let to many different sorts of sort of creative office uses. We always had in the back of our minds it, it was a redevelopment site. It, it, it wasn't a great building for offices, and we felt it offered an opportunity. And when Paddington started to become regenerated, um, and Westminster were clearly looking for for re regeneration of the whole area. We realized many years down the line that there was an opportunity to, to look at a much bigger building. And so we commissioned Fletcher Priest and um, we won a planning permission actually. And being the sort of guys we are, it wasn't a, a, a we didn't own the freehold. We, we owned a long leasehold and we weren't able to start it when we were hoping to start it. And, we, we, we just kept the planning going and uh, kept our tenants, you know, in place. And when we reviewed it several years later, it's quite interesting. We just felt it didn't really tick the box. It didn't do what it should do. And we, we went back to Fletcher Priest and said, we want it to speak much more. We want it to be a grittier building, a building it's, it's right over the canal. It, it's, it's got amazing, it's an amazing position and location. And we want it to speak maybe a little bit more of the railway age. We want it to have a, we've got this lovely industrial ethos at Derwin, uh, you know, that started with tea building and, and Colbrook Row all those years ago. And we felt this was an opportunity to build something, you know, really exciting. And with that brief, Fletcher Priest went off, thought about it, and came back with this brilliant idea of a diagrid structure that would hold the building up and give us column-free space within. Um, and um, the diagrid itself started off actually in a much simpler form. And again, we said, 
looking at a lot of the bridges that existed, even, even you know, the railway bridges, we said, you know, that's what we want, something much tougher, much stronger. And they went back to the drawing board and came up with the current design, and it was like, that's it, that's the one. You know, we, we were really excited at what, what, what it could be. So if you describe it, it's, it's got this almost explosion of iron across the, what, look like, what looks like. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I think it's, uh, it's referenced as an I-beam. It's an I-beam column, so it's a detailed, it's not flat. It's not round, which a lot of the modern um, diagrids would be. They'd be more contemporary. We, we, we were happy for it to have a slightly retro feel. Um, and, and then we, we, we married it with concrete, uh, you know, it, um, w which I think it, it works really well. It's a dark frame with the diagrid and then, and then we've got this exposed concrete core which, which contrasts really strongly with it and I think it's going to be a very handsome, exciting building. Um, and um, it's already two-thirds pre-let, so someone out there likes it. So when we talk about where it is, it's right on the canal in Paddington Basin. And when, when I've spoken to you before about Paddington and about um, Fitzrovia, you, you've often used this phrase where you say, you know, I want the buildings to speak to each other. Why, why is that important and what does that mean? And what, what buildings, in your view, don't speak um, to other buildings? Well, well you know, we, we've got like the T building in, in Shoreditch and there's a few apartment blocks that have gone up, for example. Um, and they absolutely have nothing to do with Shoreditch. They, they don't retain the character of Shoreditch. And it, it worries me as a Londoner who, who often, you know, I'm walking around various areas of, of London and, and I see these buildings that are, are soulless, basically, and think, well, how did they win planning or how did they get through? And th there's no reference at all. And uh, I, I think where I would take my hat off, I think one of the best developments I've ever seen you know, that, that, or that exists post-war in London has got to be King's Cross. Because at King's Cross, you've got a marvellous selection of buildings, hugely talented architects. And I think Argent have done an absolutely brilliant job because the buildings do speak to each other there. That There's a, a mixture of old and new. There's a mixture of, of regenerated buildings um, and, and wonderful new buildings. And I think in Paddington, sadly... It, it doesn't have that. It, it misses slightly. Um, I hope our building will revive it. I hope our building will give it, um, you know, a bit of gravitas. Um, I'm confident it will. But, but, uh, but I think some of the buildings, without being too disrespectful to all those developers, and I don't think they'll be too sensitive because they were built now several years ago, but they, 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 they stand shoulder to shoulder and they just don't have much in common. And I think the area's lost that, that characteristic that, that maybe it could have retained uh, more readily. So, um, and yeah. because it was portioned off, I mean, in King's Cross, you have a singular developer doing a large one. So they're able to maybe you know, build that relationship across the master plan. In Paddington, you have these um, many islands. So is there, I mean, I don't know, is there... Um, uh, a committee group meeting of developers who get together and think, how are these going to... No, I, I think it's down to planning. I mean, you know, it's down to the London boroughs, whether you're Camden, Islington, Westminster. Uh, you know, I guess you've got to give a strong design brief, you know, and, and you've got to sit in judgment and make sure it works. And um, 
I'm being slightly critical, but I, but I think there are parts of London where it absolutely doesn't, you know, and, and that's sad. Um, having said that, one good building comes along and, and it can revive it, and, um, and, and then hopefully others will follow. But um, I think often it's the residential buildings that are, in my opinion, some of the most lacking, um, and they're there forever. Office buildings normally have a life of maybe 30 years, 40 years, longer if they're great. Um, I hope some of ours last longer. Um, but residential buildings, you know, 125-year lease, once they're up, you're never going to say goodbye to them. So I think even more care should be given to residential buildings and how they're, how they're made. And um, if you were going to give a challenge to the planners, what, you, what would you be talking about? Materiality? Absolutely, or? brick. I mean, London brick and London and, and Portland stone and all the lovely materials that we use in the, in the, in the 19th century and, and, and beyond. Um, it, yeah, I think if you gave architects the fact that it, it should follow some kind of format, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the sort of buildings I find particularly soulless are, are the big glass buildings that are not particularly well articulated and, and that I don't think give much back at all. And so residential, I think, if we start to brick and stone, you know, in a contemporary format, I don't, I, I'm not suggesting they, they should be retro. I mean, all the wonderful mansion blocks that were built in London all those years ago, in my opinion, are so much nicer than a lot of the apartment blocks that are built today, you know, which must say something. And your architecture is, does tend to be quite contemporary when you do commission new it. Unashamedly. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean you know, we don't, we don't want pastiches. We, we want to go forward and we want to create, you know, the next good thing. And uh, I, I work very closely with Simon Alford of AHMM Architects. And he always says to me, and the next one will be even better. And, that, and that's the challenge that the next one should be better than the last. When you have these, um, the, the, the very large blocks, that's one thing you have um, in King's Cross and in some of the newer developments, and you've yeah. got these kind of larger blocks too. Would you say to planners that they need to be broken down to make the street? Is that, is that a better approach? In some way. I mean, you know, there's, as, a, as I said earlier, there are so many talented firms of architects that would be able to deliver that, that, that sort of ethos where you don't feel that you, you, you've got this big monolithic structure in front of you, that there are ways of doing it without losing masses of square footage. You, you know, there's, there's ways of winning space and, and there's ways of creating wonderful volumes um, w without having sort of these bland, clad buildings that sadly just too often get constructed. Um, having said that, I think there are lots of wonderful buildings that, that, that are also appearing on our skylines. So, you know, it, it's, it's just that the, the, the soulless ones spoil them, you know, so, so badly in some of these wonderful, characterful areas that, that, we, that we live and work in. Um, but we've got, we've got some great architecture as well in London. I'm not painting a, a bleak picture. I mean, the, the, there are wonderful things happening as, as, as well as the odd bad one. Um, and we're getting better at it. And we've got amazing talent out there to deliver these buildings. So I'm, I'm confident that, but I, I do think the planning authorities, when they have these big tracts of land like a Paddington or, a, you know, King's, King's Cross, that there's got to be a great master plan. And with a great master plan, you'll get, you'll get great buildings.
I wanted to ask about inside the office. There's always this idea that people need, you know, kind of the breakout or places to meet or engage. And there's a sense that we've really understand how that works now in the office or what you need in terms of that that social connection mm. and you know and then in the city we're maybe not quite sure how to do that how to create external rooms but i wondered if there's something we can learn i mean what is it what is the ideal in in an office you know to to make sure that people are engaging or gathering. We've talked about this a lot at Derwin, and and again, going back many years, we'd buy a 60s building, and the first thing we'd do is take down the the full ceilings and create more space, and we'd deconstruct the space. And I I think what happened, I think it was an age that was born out of those university kids, that they had their digs, and they came out of university, and they started these businesses, um, which has now come into the, what we call the tech age. And they wanted their office to be far more informal than the previous era. They wanted their office to, in some ways, even resemble what they had in their digs, that, that there, there were playful things. There were, um, that, that they were you know, deconstructing the office in, in, in a different format. And as we know today, more and more offices are going down that, going down that sort of design road um, and informality and breakout is is order of the day. So when I started work, it was very much um, you know nine to five. To d- today, it's twenty four seven. And in order to attract talent, companies have realised that you've got to have interesting offices. You've got to have great offices that you're happy to work long hours in. And if you're going to work long hours in, you've got to have not necessarily play things, but you've got to have a great canteen, you've got to have breakout spaces, you've got to have lounges, you've got to have informality, because it, there's no doubt it increases productivity. If you've got great workspace and you've got a great workforce that love that building or love their offices, they're going to work longer hours there. And that's how it works. And people have caught on to that in a big way. And many, many of the tenants we speak to now all talk that language you know, it's not lost. I, I think in the city, it's just, it, it is still a little bit more corporate. I mean, we, we don't really touch the city at Derwent. We're very much a West End and East End play, and we circumvent the city. So, but I, I've even noticed that in the city now, there are certain buildings that are be, be, being transformed in, in the same way as we've been doing it in the West End for the last 10 or 12 years. Um, when you say informality, I mean, it might have started with this kind of beanbag and you know, table football, but it's not really like that anymore. It's very high design environment. I mean, if it's a lounge, it seems, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen a beanbag in a, in a Derwent office before, I don't think. No, but, but then there's two, there's two ends to that. There's, the, the, let's say, the sophisticated end, which is a big, big, powerful company, maybe, and they'll have the sophisticated sort of, you know, techie office. And then you've got startups who, who, who like the beanbag. But I think if the, if the startups do very well and grow as they seem to do. So, you know, you go and look at Google's offices today compared to Google's offices when we had them on Charing Cross Road all those years ago. It just evolves, doesn't it? If you look at the city and the way we do public realm, it is still very formal. Do you think there's something we could learn from that interior informal? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think it's the tenant profile. You, you've got many financial institutions, banking, um, and although they are changing, and there's no doubt they are changing, 
they're still more formal than many of the creatives, the advertising companies, the publishers, you know, the architects and designers uh, who, who definitely have more, more playful interiors than, 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 than the, what we call the corporates. But I think corporate, the corporate world is changing. So, for example, changes that are taking place start with places like the NED, right? The, the, the NED is transformational. It's, you know, okay, there's eight restaurants down there on the ground floor, but, but it changes the way city folk, their perception of how things are going to be. And we've had a lot of architects that we know, guys that work on our schemes that are doing things in the city. And again, they're being asked to do it more like they've done in the West End and more like they've done in Shoreditch and Clerkenwell. Um, so I think it is changing. I think change is afoot in the city. And I, th I think... Um, there will always be a formal side to certain industries, a little bit more corporate, but, but I think you'll see it, it, it ease up over the years. I'm, I'm pretty convinced it will change. There's the Bloomberg HQ as well there now. Amazing, amazing. I was privileged enough to be taken around it, and uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful building. And, um, yeah, it's another, another sort of milestone into maybe the way things are going to change in the city. It feels like a West End project dropped into the middle of, of the city in some way. It doesn't feel West End to me because it's too big to be West End. It's giant. You don't get sites that big in the West End. But, but it, it, it is fantastic. And, um, you know, um, well done, Foster and Partners. The Ned is funny because, it, I mean, if you describe it, it's right across from the Bank of England. It's a historic facade. But when you walk in, it is a place just inside the building. Oh, it's incredible. I was, I was fortunate enough, you know, Nick Jones is a tenant of ours at the T building and Nick invited um, a couple of us to go around the building when it was finished and it was already bustling and you walk into that giant entrance and lounge and it, it's just, there's, it's full of life and um, you, you've got all these different restaurants, you, you know, the, the lower ground floor had the old Goldfinger safe. They even turned that into a little sitting room. Um, you go to the top floors where they've got their restaurant and where, where it apparently it is membership. But it, again, phenomenal facilities, big mixed use. The hotel was already full, you know. Um, you know, they've done a fantastic job and it's what London needs going forward. It's very exciting. What does London need? Life, you know, to keep that buzz going. To, and, and, you know, architecture, it, it rests often with its... Buildings are defined by, sorry, cities are defined by their buildings and therefore it's so important that the standard of architecture is, is really high, especially new buildings that the planners should be. They should give all people, developers like us, a tough time because they should be very demanding of what we're going to do because once that building's built, it's going to stand there for many, many years and it's got to, for my Part, it's got to last the test of time that someone walks walks past it 40 years later and says do you know what it's a great building so i wanted to ask you about brick because you, you've mentioned it a few times as being so emblematic of london um but you you actually love uh, danish brick but you're bringing it in and and just tell me about um the bricks that you've used and your passion uh, uh, no i like brick full stop i like london stock i, I mean it just so happened that it was a it was a fortunate occurrence. I was sitting at my desk and this magazine type periodical arrived on my desk and it was from a company in Denmark called Peterson's. And I, I flicked through, through the, um, the magazine 
and I saw all these wonderful developments in Scandinavia um, using a, a whole array of these handmade bricks. And, and what was interesting is the architecture was so good. All, all the firms of architects that had bothered to find this Peterson's factory um, had, had all used you know, terrific talent. So I thought, it, it, we must pay them a visit. And uh, a few of us from Durban went over and we met Peterson's and we were absolutely blown away. Um, you know, they, they, they explained how it was a, a very small production compared, com compared to the big automated factories and that they were indeed actually handmade. You could, you could, you could order, or, order to, you know, or, order to your, to whatever demand you had. And that their story actually started with um, Peter Zumter, the very well-known Swiss architect, um, arriving at their factory, saying he, he was doing this Columba project where he had to merge old and new buildings. And he had in his mind that he wanted a, an elongated brick. And he said to um, Christian Peterson, who's an amazing character, um, can you make this for me? And, and Christian said, well, of course I can. That, that's what we do. We can make any type of brick, any type of colour. All our clay pits around, uh, around our factory, we can do whatever you want. And they made this extraordinary brick for those that know it. And when we saw this brick, we said, we would love, we've got to use it. We've got to use it in London somewhere. And although we kicked off with Mike Stiff of St Stiff and Trevelyan, we, we built a lovely brick building opposite Angel on the Pentonville Road. And we used a more standardised form. Columba was, was not order of the day there, it wasn't suitable, but we had in our mind, it's gonna be somewhere. And indeed the next project we had, which was on the corner of Clerkenwell Road um, and Turnmill Street, we had this fantastic opportunity with Architects Pearson Co. And we made several trips to Peterson's and it was just the most wonderful um, journey that we had with Peterson's in, in doing this very pale, and beautiful sculptured brick. And what we learned about even brick, that with the grouting, if you recess the grouting, it makes the brick stand proud and it gives it a more of a sculptural feel. If the grouting is full, it, it gives a flatter appearance to brick and, and even a nice brick can look ordinary. So we, it was a really good lesson and, and we, we, we've always had this slightly regressed um, grouting and even the colour of the grousing is so important to set the brick off. And we, we built Turnmill and we built Pentonville Road and um, 80 Charlotte, which, you know, which we've discussed previously, has three different types of pieces in brick. So I can't wait for Fitzrovia to be treated in the same, in the same way. When we talk about the, the Turnmill building, um, when walking along it, how it does... Uh, form a really unique part of the street. It, it turns the corner, with, it has a rounded corner that kind of leads you around to where the station is. I mean, it forms a really lovely part of the road, but also you can't help wanting to touch it. Is that really important, having buildings that have that materiality where you just want to stroke them? Or music to my ears, because yeah, absolutely. It's like a lovely sculpture, you know, and you go into an art gallery and you can see it says, don't touch, but you want to. And it's the same with, 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 with a building that's got great, great materiality. Yeah, you, you, you want to touch the brick. Well, I think what's lovely about using brick is you, and we've done it on, on, on two or three buildings, is the, the brick on the outside turns into the entrance hall. 
and you can touch the brick there. You know, you, 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 you probably feel less conscious sitting down in, in, in a nice reception that's brick-lined. Um, and and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good feel factor. And, and certainly the buildings that we've done in brick, where, where we've got brick receptions as well, or an element of brick in the reception, it's been very, very well received and it's uh, much liked. We've got this um, digital age. We're touching these smooth, shiny things <clears throat> all the time now. Do you feel that that's making a more um, tactile or rougher, tougher approach to the city more desirable? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I guess I guess it must. I couldn't I couldn't give you lo loads of examples. You know, all, all I know is at Derwent London, the importance we do, as you know, we're office providers, so it's all about office buildings, and therefore the entrance hall, and as you walk in, your first appearance of the, of, of the building is judged by the entrance. And we've always felt a generous entrance hall where, which people can use um, throughout the day is, is really important. And I think the question of tactile materials is very much at play in an entrance hall. You know, it's the furniture, it's the artwork, it's, it's not just the architecture, it's how you put everything together. Uh, you know, it's, it's like sitting at home, you know, you choose everything you love at home. You want 80, 90% of the people that walk into that building to love your entrance hall. And, and that we work certainly very hard in trying to achieve that. And, and, and I, I, I hope we succeed more often than not. What do you want them to feel when they walk in? I want them to be lifted. So even if you're the sort of guy that walks in with a hangover on a Monday morning, you walk into your lovely entrance hall and you, you, feel, you feel happy to be going back to work. You, you know, it's, um, it, it, as I said, even the artwork is, I think, very important. We commission most of our artworks. We don't buy them because I think that working together with artist and architect and having a collaboration um, is, is more fulfilling and, and more productive than just going and buying a piece of art. And, and I think it contributes it to, to that whole feel of good feeling of, of walking into a building. And you, you, it's, it's everything together um, that you experience as you walk in that makes you feel you're in a nice place. Thank you very much. Yeah. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.